There is overwhelming grace for someone who first comes to Jesus to find forgiveness for sin, right? But what happens when a believer realizes they can't ever stop sinning this side of heaven? Do we lose God's favor? Is the grace now gone? Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. Today is part two of our series called How to Keep Going. John is walking us through many teachings that have been misused to keep believers caught in a destructive cycle of thinking, but he has some breakthrough gospel encouragement to assure you in this struggle. Let's listen now to his message called, Christ Died for the Sins of Christians, too. Here's part two. Can those who are converted to God keep these commandments, the Ten Commandments, perfectly? And here's the answer, no. It says, but even the holiest men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live, not only according to some, but according to all the commandments of God. Those who are truly born again love all of God's law and with true and earnest purpose want to keep it, yet that beginning obedience is very small in this life. But it's there. And so the evidence, the, the evidence of the new birth of genuine faith is not sinless perfection. The evidence of, of possessing genuine saving faith, of truly being submitted to Jesus as Savior and Lord, is not achieving a level of victorious Christian living at some point where you begin to live without sin. The evidence of the new birth is whether there is a war raging in your life right now. Listen again to the realism of the Apostle Paul's confession when he as a justified believer is lamenting his, his, his inability as a justified, sanctified believer to keep God's law perfectly in his life as a Christian. He says, I joyfully, did you hear that? I joyfully concur with the law of God in, my, in the inner man. He says, but I see a different law waging, uh, I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? You see, Paul tells us here very clearly that a Christian is not one who ceases sinning. Listen to this dual tension in the Christian life. Who is a Christian? What is a Christian? What is the Christian experience in this life? A Christian is a person who's been brought to life by the Holy Spirit, united to Christ by grace through faith alone, and therefore, listen, like the Apostle Paul, they say, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. A Christian is a, is a, is a man or a woman who says, I love God's law. I love it with all my heart. While at the exact same time laments his or her inability to constantly obey what they truly love. And Paul says, I am not practicing what I would like to do, what I love. He says, but I'm doing the very thing I hate, which is disobeying God's law, even as a justified believer. And so it is this, it is the believing sinner's inability to obey God's law perfectly, which we love in this life that creates the war within. This is where this tension comes from. A Christian who possesses genuine saving faith isn't carefree, isn't casual, isn't tolerant with their sin. 
A Christian is one who hates their sin and laments over it. Listen to what it sounds like. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? That is the true realistic experience of every born-again believer. And then listen, when a believer confesses that, they don't stay there because they immediately turn outside of themselves and look to faith in Christ alone like the Apostle Paul did. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the agony of defeat and the thrill of victory in one breath. But listen, before finally being taught that Christ died for the Christians, sins of Christians too, that grace abounds to Christians who sin, no one ever answered Paul's question for me in Romans 7. I was just left with Paul's question, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Nobody ever answered that question for me. And I was just left navel-gazing with my bad performance in my life in the tests of faith from 1 John. And so I was left looking at my failure to conform perfectly to God's law, and no one ever pointed me outside of myself to Christ. I was just pointing back to the test of faith. I was pointing back to my life as these measuring rods for determining if I possess genuine saving faith. And so what happened with me is I was trapped in this vicious, soul-killing cycle of sin, tests, doubt. Sin, tests, doubt. And I was like a hamster on the little hamster wheel, running so hard, trying so hard, sin, fall out, Test it. Why did I fall out? Because you disobeyed. More doubt. Get back on the hamster wheel. Fall off. Test it. Doubt. Get back. And it was this vicious cycle. You see, because this vicious cycle destroyed, eventually destroyed my assurance. And so the question of assurance lies at the heart of this issue. The issue of assurance lies at the heart of keeping on going. You see, for those who are struggling to persevere, those who are restless, those who are full of doubt and fear and despair, much of it is due to the kind of preaching that you hear. Much of the preaching that you hear focuses the believer's assurance on his or her good works. And it takes your focus off the finished work of Christ for you, which is outside of you. For the first 30 years of my Christian life, the focus for my assurance was never directed to the finished work of Christ for me, outside of me. Never, not one time, not once was I ever given that, that focus. Listen again to Ron Rosenblatt as he talks about this experience from his uh, students where he taught in this Christian university. He writes this, he says, there is wonderful grace for the sinner and the evangelical is at his best in evangelism. But the question as to whether there is enough grace for the sinful Christian is an open question in many gatherings. He says, and I have had many students tell me, quote, my last state is worse than the first. I think I've got to lead the faith because I feel worse now than I did before, end quote. 
He says, I've had people come up to me after I had spoken and tell me this is about the last shot I've got. My own Christian training is killing me. I can understand how before I was a Christian, Christ's death was for me, but I am not all that sure that his death is for me now because I have surrendered so little to him and hold so much back, end quote. I, I think many of us can relate to these students who are struggling. I know I can because when the student said, listen, my own Christian training is killing me, that is exactly what happened to me. It was killing me. This training that I received in the theology of doubt and despair made Christ out to be this harsh, demanding taskmaster whose yoke was not easy and whose burden was certainly not light. Jesus was presented to me like many medieval parish churches in the medieval times prior to the Reformation. When you walked into a medieval parish church, what you saw was a ginormous picture in the nave right when you walk in the front door of Jesus looming over the top of you as an angry judge. Jesus is this angry judge who's mad at you because your performance is so bad, he's just displeased with you. Jesus standing over the nave when you walk in, threatening sinners with punishment and condemnation because you are bad. How many times have we heard this theology of doubt and despair given to us with threats from Matthew chapter 7? Lord, Lord, it goes like this. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then Jesus, the big angry judge, will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How many times have sinning believers been scolded and threatened out of context with this passage and put fear rather than faith in their hearts? Listen carefully. This passage is warning to Pharisees who denied the Messiahship, the Christhood of Jesus. If you deny that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's not Messiah, this applies to you. This is not a passage given to believers who keep sinning. It has nothing to do with that. Nothing. And so if we are to keep going on when we are walking in darkness and we don't see any light of our own, this is what we have to come to understand. Listen carefully. While our obedience, our good works, which is called the reflex act of faith, while our good works, our obedience, our repentance is ever so small, it can provide some support for our assurance, but it can never serve as the foundation for your assurance. Listen to John Calvin as he explains that point. He says, our acts of obedience have no place in laying a foundation to strengthen the conscience. He says, for if Christians begin to judge their salvation by good works, nothing will be more uncertain or more feeble. From this, it comes about that the believer's conscience feels more fear and consternation 
than assurance. He's exactly right. Why? Because listen carefully, even on your very best quiet time day, where everything goes absolutely perfect from sun up to sundown, even on your very best day, you're just like Noah, Abraham, David, Peter, and Paul. You are at best simultaneously justified and sinful. You will be a believing sinner until you die or until Jesus comes again. This is why our full assurance of faith is found outside of ourselves in Jesus alone. The gospel is for unbelievers and believers alike because our faith must rest on the finished work of Christ alone. Why? Because it is in Christ alone that we find grace abounding to Christians who sin. I want to definitively show you this. So if you have your Bible, turn over to 1 John chapter 2. Let's look at verses 1 through 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Listen to what the Apostle John says here to us about how grace abounds to Christians who sin, about how Christ died for Christians who sin. Listen, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He says, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. That's what that means. He's the he's only doctor, he's the only physician in the world that, that Jew or Gentile has to go to to have their sins forgiven. And so the Apostle John teaches in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, that grace abounds to Christians who sin. Let me back up and give you some context. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, John is correcting three false views of sin. He's refuting these false teachers who had come into the church and were claiming to these believers in these churches that they, listen carefully, had entered into a higher fellowship with God than the average believer, that they claimed they had, they claimed they had arrived at being victorious Christians who have overcome all sin in this life. But their claims were false because their claims are based on faulty views of sin. And so John refutes all three of their claims in verses 6 through 10. Here's the first one, verses 6 through 7. John refutes the claim that a person can have fellowship, that is salvation with God, while at the same time continuing in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. There's no repentance John says that's a false claim. That, that doesn't exist. Second, in verses 8 through 9, John refutes the person who claims that they have now ceased to sin. Those kinds of people are very, I hate to say it, obnoxious to live with. <laughs> it's not reality. But verse 10, John refutes this third false claim. John refutes the person who claims they have never sinned. See, verse 10 is even worse than verses 8 through 9. Verses 8 through 9, they used to sin, but they stopped. 
Verse 10 is they never have. They've always been perfect. Wouldn't you like to be that person? You've always been perfect in thought, word, and deed ever since you were conceived in your mother's womb. And so John refutes these false claims of sin. And in response to these false claims about sin, John reveals in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, how the problem of sin is dealt with in the believer. You see, what he shows is that the believer doesn't profess he's sinless or she's sinless or has never sinned or can continue licentious lifestyle without any repentance whatsoever. That's not what John says the, sinner, the, the believing sinner does. He points believing sinners outside of themselves to Christ, who he says is our advocate and our propitiation. Listen again to what he writes. This is how believers deal with sin. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's saying to us, the gospel is never a license to sin. The gospel doesn't produce careless, laissez-faire attitudes about sin. We hate our sin. We don't sin. We do sin, but we confess our sin. First John chapter 1, verse 9. We don't deny our sin. We don't say we're sinless. We confess it. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Why does he emphasize the righteous? Because we in and of ourselves are not in our practice righteous. He's righteous. He's sinless. And he says, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. John tells us the good news for Christians who sin, that grace abounds to Christians who sin. John assures us by telling us that there is room at the cross for Christians who sin that Christ died for the sins of Christians too. How does he do this? He emphasizes it in two ways. First, he says that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Back in chapter one, verses one through four, in the opening verses of his letter, he tells us that Jesus has eternally existed with the Father. He's always been in the presence of his Father. And he says that now Jesus is our advocate in the presence of our Father. That means he's our defense attorney. This is a courtroom language. As our advocate in the courtroom of God the Father, Jesus doesn't plead our innocence. He doesn't look at the Father and say, see, they're sinless. They're sinless. He acknowledges our guilt, but he presents his vicarious propitiatory sacrifice as the ground of our acquittal in the courtroom. He is our advocate, and what does he advocate? What is his defense argument? His propitiation. What is propitiation? We've said it a million times here. It is the utter exhaustion of every last drop of God's wrath against us forevermore. For every sin that we've ever committed in thought, word, and deed. This is what Jesus prayed about and agonized over in the garden when he said, I don't want to drink this cup. What was the cup? It was the cup of God's wrath. It was becoming a propitiation on the cross as our advocate. And listen, here lies the Christian's assurance and foundation for assurance in the motivation to keep going. First John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 is the fourth comfortable word in one of Thomas Cranmer's most famous compositions in the Book of Common Prayer that he wrote during the Reformation. It's called Holy Communion's Comfortable Words. 
Thomas Cranmer scholar, Ashley Knoll, who is the foremost scholar in the world on the English Reformation, and Thomas Cranmer, he says this, he says that Holy Communion's comfortable words is the gospel according to Reformation Anglicanism. Listen to what he writes about 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 during the liturgy that we'll experience here in just a couple minutes. He says this, 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 2 reminds us because Christ has made the sacrifice which has removed God's wrath from us. He is now our advocate. Jesus himself is the one who stands by our side. He is the one who answers for us when we're accused of being sinners. Here is the heart of the revolution in the understanding of Jesus that the English reformers wanted to proclaim. What is it? Listen, Jesus is not our judge. Jesus is our defense attorney. I want you to get that today because if you're gonna keep going on, you have to understand Jesus is not angry with you. He's not a harsh taskmaster. He's not demanding from you that which you can't give him anymore because by his grace, what he demands, he also gives in the new covenant. Listen, as we finish, we have all heard the calls to holiness, right? We have all heard the moral pleas. We have all heard, and perhaps some of us read, the challenge to be radical, We've all heard the challenges to surrender all. We've all heard the continual nonstop call that to glorify God, we must be most satisfied in him. We've all heard the threats. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Depart from me, for I never knew you. We've all heard the threats. We've heard the endless calls to rededicate our lives, to come forward and lay it all down on the altar. And through all of these calls that we've heard endlessly throughout our lives, we're hoping that perhaps this time something will stick and it'll work. And yet, after successive attempts after attempts at all of this stuff, we just give up. We can't keep going. And so if we are to keep going, especially when we're walking in darkness and do not see any light of our own, we have to understand this key right here. Listen, grace abounds to Christians who sin. We have to look outside of ourselves to Christ alone, who is the foundation of our assurance because he is our advocate with the Father He is righteous, and he is our propitiation for all our sins, both as an unbeliever and as a believer. We have to remember what the theologian, Lutheran theologian Rod Rosenblatt reminds us of. Christ's death saves even Christians from sin. There is room at the cross for Christians who sin. Christ died for the sins of Christians too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you that Jesus is our advocate. 
We thank you that Jesus is the righteous one. We thank you that Jesus is our propitiation. We thank you that he is our foundation, that he is our righteousness, that he is our life. Help us to look outside of ourselves because if we continually navel gaze, we see our failure. But if we look outside of ourselves to Christ alone, we see our salvation and we see all our failure covered by his advocacy because of his perfect vicarious substitutionary death as our propitiation, having fully exhausted your judgment and wrath against us forevermore. And there we find a secure foundation upon which our faith can rest and we can be assured that we are in favor with our Father and that Jesus is not our judge. He is our advocate. He is our defense attorney who stands faithfully by our side and intercedes for us with his perfect death on the cross for our sin forevermore. As we come to you on the ministry of your table this morning, would you, Holy Spirit, confirm and assure our hearts of the good news that we have heard and strengthen our faith. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, John. That's part two of a message called Christ Died for the Sins of Christians Too." More from this mini-series, How to Keep Going, coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.